Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. This week we ask, is technology making us populists? We woke up one day and discovered that connectivity had become fast, free, easy for you and ubiquitous. App makers, Silicon Valley executives and coders wax lyrical about the benefits of technological disruption. But the rapid pace of innovation threatens the jobs of millions. 2016 marked a backlash against globalisation. And 2017, Donald Trump has spearheaded a movement to pull back from open borders and to emphasise domestic interests and concerns instead. His plan to revive the American economy clearly resonated with displaced American workers. So has technological disruption made us, like it or not, populists? And what does that mean for the future of globalisation? In the studio with me to answer those questions is Tom Friedman. Tom's a multiple Pulitzer Prize winning journalist for The New York Times, where he's also foreign affairs columnist. Hello, Tom. Good to be with you, Anne. And welcome to London. Thank you. In 2005, he published a best-selling book, The World is Flat, and these principles are revisited but also expanded in his latest book, Thank You for Being Late, An Optimist's Guide to Thriving in the Age of Acceleration. You came on time, Tom. <laughs> and with me also is senior editor here at The Economist with me, our big data and technology guru, Ken Cookier. Hello, Ken. Hello, Anne. So, Tom, your book begins by looking at the changes that took place in 2007. And you say that there are vintage years in wine and vintage years in history. 2007 was definitely one of those premier crews. Why? Well, 2007 began with Steve Jobs unveiling the iPhone at the Moscone Center in San Francisco in January of that year, beginning a process by we've now put in the hands of about half the people on the planet a small handheld computer connected to the Internet with um, more power than the Apollo space mission. Uh, but that was just 2007 clearing its throat and because in 2007, Facebook opened itself up to anyone with a registered email address and broke out of high schools and universities and went global. Uh, Twitter did the same thing that year. In 2007, Hadoop, the most important software you've never heard of, uh, named after the founder's son's toy elephant, was launched into the wild. It uh, is the software that basically, in simple terms, enables a million computers to work together as one. That's called big data. GitHub, the world's biggest software open source repository, it went, launched in 2007. The Kindle launched in 2007. IBM La Watson launched in 2007. Android launched in 2007. Airbnb. Be launched in 2007. You rest your case, yes. uh, and I, I'm sure you know, 
Ken, I want to go on. <laughs> you can go on. But Ken Cookier, I'm sure, who has a candle on every cake for that year yeah. too, might like to tease that out with you in a second. I'm just going to put the Mrs. Normal question. The Mrs. Normal question is, really, 2007, you remember for that? Everybody else remembers it as the run-up to the financial crash. Are you already on a slightly different planet from the one which a lot of people feel these things impact on them negatively or at least cause concern? Well, I would say is what's ironic, people, what I tell people what happened in 2007, which is that basically our physical technologies, I think, sped up almost like a moving sidewalk at an airport that suddenly went from five miles an hour to 50 miles an hour. And we all missed it because of 2008. Uh, so right when our physical technology sped up, what uh, Eric Beinhacker, uh, the economist at Oxford, calls our social technologies, all the things you needed to go with that, the regulatory reform, the adjustment mechanisms, they really froze because of 2008. And I would argue we're still living in that dislocation. Ken, do you share that view that 2007 is the big year we all missed? I think it's a bit arbitrary. You can always look at a lot of different antecedents for it. The point is that even if it's an arbitrary date, it's still a very useful date to fixate the minds precisely for the reason that Thomas pointed out, that while everyone has been captivated by what has happened in the financial crisis, there were these antecedents, these little seedlings that were laid upon the landscape that would come to fruition over the last decade that now we can look back and we can witness the revolution in the rearview mirror and we can actually see something special was going on. I'll give you one example. The date happens to be 2008 and then 2012, but those were the foundational dates in which deep learning, the new technique of artificial intelligence, really came to the fore. So it's to say that if you really wanted to understand what's happening with AI and why we're talking about it, the lineage dates back only five years, maybe seven if you're a little bit more of a historian. Why did you choose this theme of acceleration? I understand that you can make 2007 right. the big bang. What then changes in terms of the impact of technology on human beings? That's a good question, Anne. So I think two things actually happened, let's say, in the early 21st century that I think were a difference of degree that was a difference in kind. And they're both driven by a price collapse. Uh, the first was a collapse in the price of fiber optic cable. That happened around 2000, late 90s because of the dot-com boom, bubble, and bust. We accidentally wired the world with fiber optic cable. Honey, I shrunk the world. I didn't mean to. But we woke up one day and discovered that connectivity had become fast, free, easy for you, and ubiquitous. And I actually wrote a book at that time called The World is Flat to kind of capture that moment about connectivity. I think what happened in and around 2007 was another price collapse. And it was the collapse in the price of storage and compute. And it was a difference of degree and difference of kind that actually paved the way for things like DeepMind and AI because you needed massive amounts of storage and compute power to do it. Now, when you put those two things together, what happened was connectivity became fast, free, easy for you, and ubiquitous. And I would argue complexity became fast, free, easy for you, and invisible in more and more ways. And those two together created a real energy release. An energy release, but that sounds very positive. And we're mm -hmm. talking here in a context, this book was like written, obviously, before Donald Trump was mm -hmm. elected. And you mentioned Brexit, but the fallout from that vote is, is still happening. Yeah. It's almost as if sort of tonally, I felt, at least in the first half of the book, that mm -hmm. you're still a glad, confident morning, hurrah. And would you, you know, would you have you know, hands up, foreseen any of this or this negative impact or at least very disruptive impact of what you seem to say is a great opportunity. 
What I actually say is that, as I've always said about globalization, you got to get the best out of it and cushion the worst. It's everything and its opposite. It can be incredibly empowering, incredibly disempowering, incredibly authoritarian and incredibly democratizing, incredibly particularizing and incredibly homogenizing. It all depends what values you bring to it. That's always been my argument. I had Brexit already in my rearview mirror when I was writing this book, and I certainly was keenly aware that Donald Trump could win this election. That's why none of it surprised me uh, by what I wrote. I don't think we should exaggerate Brexit or Donald Trump, and we should not minimize it, because there are a lot of people who are getting the best out of this and cushioning the worst. I think we should take them as wake-up calls as how we do that much better. It's very easy to over-index on these things, particularly for people who uh, probably don't like Donald Trump and quite a lot of them don't like Brexit. Anyway, so you hear these things, Ken, being blamed from pretty much everything. You know, my local uh, tiny little art gallery dealer down in a coast, south coast of England, said, oh, it's all because of Brexit and Donald Trump. And I thought, well, maybe because the paintings weren't very good. Do you feel something like that also happens in the technological argument that we talk about this disruption and jobs being destroyed? And how many of those jobs are really to do with a fantastic acceleration? How many of them are just jobs that over time would have been shared anyway. And it's such a really good point. Uh, Recently, the tech world and business world has gone gaga over the fact that a Japanese insurance firm has shed 30 staff because they've bought some IBM hardware with the name Watson on it, thinking that this is how AI is going to eviscerate jobs. And it's the most laughable claim. It's that this insurance agency happened to be so far behind the times Mm. and practices from the 1980s with basically mainframe computers. They hadn't adopted. Many Japanese companies are zombie-like, and they've got more staff because of the sense of obligation to the employees rather than to the shareholders. So as a result, they're simply modernizing their workforce with an ordinary computer and jobs are leaving. So there was there was nothing new here, but I think we're ready to see the worst because we fear AI. The one thing that I, I think that links between what we're saying here in the political realm is that we have to understand these technologies enable extremes. The 20th century was a great age of moderation. And when you only have three Uh, broadcast networks in the United States, you get a sort of homogenization of political coverage and of political views. And although you get get a sort of the mainstream wins, Mm. the silent majority, it's not so silent, it wins. But these technologies actually allow for polarization. And it was impossible to imagine Brexit or Donald Trump prior to the forces that that Tom has been talking about over the last decade that have been unleashed. What I think happened here is that Two trains came barreling down the track and collided in a way that I certainly didn't predict. One is the China joining the WTO. And we now know from economic studies that that did devour rather quickly a certain number of middle-skilled jobs in certain cities in America, and particularly in the industrial Midwest. Now, we're used to trade disrupting jobs. We know it benefits overall GDP. It hurts a few. It, it hurts a smaller number of targeted people. What happened historically is that targeted group of people who were hurt, well, they could jump from the farm to the factory, the factory to the services, services to knowledge work. Right when that train came barreling down, down the track from China, another train that Ken is expert in AI, software, machine learning, intelligent machines, I think also 
reached a critical mass, and they devoured a lot of those jobs, these middle-skilled jobs, these people normally would go into. And I think the collision of those two squeezed them in the middle, and a lot of people jumped off the track into opioids, into despair, and into isolation. It's something that you said I thought was very interesting, having Mm -hmm. looked at this more from a a policy, often an education background. You say, we've let all the physical technologies driving this process, immigration, trade, digital flows, get too far ahead of social technologies, learning and adapting right. tools. Why has that happened, given that there was a lot of hurrah about the potential for education of exactly the kind of advance you described? The reason that question, or, or your question to me about that point, explains why the book ends in a peculiar place. For a lot of people, it ends in my little hometown back in Minnesota. I grew up in a small town outside of Minneapolis. And I use that town to make the point that in this age of acceleration, I traveled all over America to do the book and the world too, but particularly around my own country more. And what I learned is that if you want to be an optimist about America, stand on your head. The country looks so much better from the bottom up than the top down. Now, the reason I say that, you come with me to Minneapolis, I'll show you 2.9% unemployment. I'll show you high wages. I'll show you a wonderful city of parks. This is not, you know, Donald Trump's a carnage is us. I'll show you a very different America. And I'm not talking about it's not the only city. So what's going on? What do the cities in America that are working have in common. I'll tell you what I found. They've developed a community ecosystem of the business community partnering with the public school system, partnering with local universities, partnering with the local philanthropies, and partnering with the local government to create an education-to-work pipeline where the businesses translate in real time what are the demands of the global economy. They bring them right into the public school systems. The philanthropies underwrite all kinds of experiments and collaborations. And presto, you have what? You have trust. You have a level of trust that allows these communities to be much more adaptive. One last point. What don't you have in Washington, D.C.? I can't speak for London. You have zero trust. And when the great challenge is adaptation, I have a friend, Dove Seidman, I quote in the book, who you know, points out that trust is the only legal performance-enhancing drug. Okay, And when there's trust in the room, people can adapt, they can experiment, they can try things. And when there's no trust in the room, watch out. And that's why cities and communities are going to be the proper governing unit of the 21st century, I argue. Very interesting. But don't you then need a city that has already good education, Mm -hmm. probably a a good university, Mm -hmm. already has businesses that have scaled and are happy to come into your partnership? Where does that leave the large parts of... Well, where does that leave? It's a very good question. Where does it leave the, the one industry town that suddenly gets hammered And doesn't have that. And obviously, they're going to have to evolve. I'm not suggesting that we don't have those two. But we have more of the the good examples than people realize. Yeah, I think I think loved that part of the mm-hmm. book. I thought mm-hmm. the ending was was excellent because if there's one guiding principle that should help us forward some of these changes, it's values and the idea of community. I was a bit dissatisfied, mm-hmm. however, by the end because I felt that it was very hard to institutionalize this. Mm-hmm. What you were looking at really was another intervening variable, which is income and a lack of extreme inequalities. But a lot of cities don't have that luxury. And so 
sort of demographics is destiny. If you're fortunate enough to have an environment in which you already have a good middle class and the jobs have not yet been eviscerated, it's going to be easier to make these gains. But if you're in L.A. or you're in New York and you have already or even Boston and you have already these the age of extremes have already washed upon your shores, mm-hmm. starting from zero and moving up is going to be a lot harder. I think it's a fair critique, and what I, but I was what, what I was trying to do is show what works. There's a sense of despair out there, like "woe is me, nothing can work." And the point I was trying to make is, wait a minute, this is working, and it's working in more than just one place too. So let's understand the beginning of wisdom. It seems to me is to understand what is working, what can work, in order to scale it to other communities. But it's a very you know good point. So as the non-geek in in the room, I'm interested in your idea that AI should become IA, artificial intelligence, should be turned into intelligent assistants or intelligent algorithms. How realistic is that, given that we know that people do struggle to keep up with technology, even those who are reasonably well-educated? What's the great cry that you hear around every office? Does anyone really know how to get beyond this app or is there a better one or what should I be doing? And uh, as you go down, obviously down the the, the learning and income scale, that gets more intense. So how realistic is it then to have an intelligent assistant who can really solve quite difficult problems, particularly in the lower socioeconomic groups? So it's a good question and I give several examples. We don't have time to go into all of them now, but let me give you let me say a simple one, the intelligent assistant at Qualcomm. So what Qualcomm did is big tech company, they made the inside of your cell phone in many cases. Um, they have a 64 building campus in San Diego. Two years ago, they wired six of the buildings with sensors on everything, every door, window, HVAC system, computer, pipe, and they take all that sensor data and they beam it up to the cloud. Uh, and then they beam it down now onto iPads for their janitors. So they're with a very simple and friendly user interface. So if Ken leaves his computer on or a pipe bursts above his head, they know it immediately. They can swipe down, find out either how to repair it or, or who to call. They've turned their janitors into maintenance technologists. Their janitors now give tours to foreign visitors. So what do you think that does for the dignity of a janitor now that he or she has an intelligent assistant to help them live at this higher rate of acceleration? And that chapter is full of other examples of just that. There I think we have to stop and rethink what we mean by AI and IA. The janitors are going to be very quickly losing their jobs. There's really no need for it. In fact, it is a job made for a robot. So really what we're talking about is these technologies are going to be doing things that no human being could possibly do. Because if a robotic janitor can clean a room 30 or 80 times faster than a human being and can actually ensure how many germs are still there, it's game over. I do agree with Tom that the 21st century is going to be the era of the heart if the 20th was of the head and the 19th was of the hand. However, what that's going to mean in practice, we really can't know yet. But we do know that it's probably going to be things about our human values. The last thing that we want to do is make janitorial jobs better. Human values, mm-hmm. where did you think they stood at the end of your survey, Tom? What do you think was, what, what do we hang on to? You know, I think this is as much as the disruption, my job, my kids' education, their jobs. It's what remains of me, what remains of me, the human being in this world. And that's why the book ends in home and in my home, because I talk the talk of globalization and technology. I do not walk the walk. You will not find me on Twitter. I have no Facebook page. And I've never smoked a cigarette. And my plan is to die saying all three. I know who my friends are. They're not a thumb up or a thumb down. And, you know, to me, 
Maybe the most important quote in this book is from our Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy. I was interviewing him. I said, uh, Dr. Murthy, what's the most prevalent disease in America? Is it cancer, diabetes, or heart disease? He said, oh, it's none of those. It's isolation. Well, think about that. We live in the most connected age in history, and the Surgeon General of America says that the biggest, you know, destabilizing disease is people feeling isolated and disconnected. And that's why I think there's going to be a huge amount of work connecting hearts. But it's also why, and my book has a theme song. I actually thought, could I buy this? And so when you open the book, it would play this song like a Hallmark card plays, Happy Birthday. Uh, and the song is by Brandy Carlisle. She's a wonderful country folk singer. And it's called I, E-Y-E. And the main refrain is, I wrapped your love around me like a chain, but I never was afraid that it would die. You can dance in a hurricane, but only if you're standing in the eye. So I think these accelerations, they're like a hurricane. I think the Brexiteers and Trump are selling a wall against these forces. And I'm selling an eye. An eye that moves with the storm, draws energy from it, but creates a platform of dynamic stability within it where people can feel connected, protected, and respected. That is the healthy community. And I think the struggle in the industrialized world in the coming years is going to be between the wall people and the eye people. And my book is a manifesto, unapologetically, for the eye people. Tom Friedman, thank you very much for being on time and such an intriguing guest. <laughs> and if you have any thoughts, suggestions or even objections to Tom's arguments, do let us know. Twitter at Economist Radio or radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.